The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. It is uh, Father's Day, and I can't help but think of my dad. He lives in, in Pakistan, and uh, he's going to turn 85 next month, and he still takes care of all of his needs. He goes to the market, gets fresh vegetables and beef and mutton, beef and everything, and cooks for himself and takes care of himself. And it's a blessing. But when I look at my life, I, of course, he's had the most profound effect on my faith. And when I look back, I realize that it wasn't the preaching, it wasn't the prayers, it wasn't any of those things that affected me. It was his response to life as a Christian that affected me the most, whether it was the time when he wrote, I quit on a piece of post-it note and slid it across his boss's desk and walked out and launched our family into a years of, of uh, pain and, and suffering, so to speak. And I was mad at him at that time. I was angry that he did that because, uh, because of the pain that our family went through. And yet, years later, when I looked back, I realized that if he hadn't done that, if he had compromised in that situation, he was being asked to be part of, a, of a an unethical practices in his organization, and he chose to walk away. If years later I'd looked back and seen him compromise, I would not have had any respect for my dad. Or when, um, when my sister passed away, and this was his favorite daughter, there are three of us, and there was no doubt that, that this one was his girl, and uh, I never tried to take her place, but when she died, I called my dad and I asked him how he was doing, and, and, uh, and he paused and he said, the Lord had given, to, given her to us, and we enjoyed her life with us, and now he's taken her back. And I couldn't fathom at that time how a dad could make that stupid statement. How can you bury your daughter and tell me that you're fine with that? And 21 years later, even now when I speak with my dad about his daughter, my sister, there is still the pain. The pain hasn't gone but there is a greater, greater recognition of God's plan. Or two years ago, to the day, today, two years ago when my mom passed away, and Janet and I were in Pakistan, every fifth sentence out of my dad's mouth was, God is good, God is good. How can you make that statement? Your wife of 47 years just died. How can you make that statement? So the effect my dad has had on my life has been just in the way he has lived his life as, uh, as a believer. And now that I've entered fatherhood, for me that happened in 2001 when Michael was born, and we've had two more uh, daughters, uh, two daughters after that. And uh, it's, it's a privilege and a joy to be called dad. You know, and, uh, and I'm very, very humbled and thankful for that. You know, seeing children grow is kind of a reminder that I'm getting old, uh, but it's a good thing. It is a good thing when you see your children grow and mature. Michael, for example, he has started to do some stuff that he wouldn't have been able to do four years ago. He cuts the grass every weekend. That's his job. If you cut the grass, he is not going to be happy. So that's his chore. He's just taken it and owned it, and, and he does it. And there are other things that he doesn't do anymore, which I am thankful for. When he was little, every time I would come home from work, we had a long hallway, he would start at the far end, 
run towards me, and just a few feet from me, he would launch himself at me. So now that he's getting older, probably for the first, last four or five years, I'm thankful that he doesn't do that. <laughs> but in any case, it is a joy, whether you're a father by birth or because God has placed you in, in other men, other women, other children's lives as an influencer. It is a pleasure and an honor to be in that role. So uh, thank the Lord for those opportunities that, uh, that God's given you. We've been in the Gospel of John for the last few, few weeks, and one of the recurring themes has been, why is this Gospel written? And John states in chapter 20, verses 30 and 30, 31, he states this very simply. He says that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written or that are not recorded, but these, the ones that we have been reading about in the Gospel of John, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the ultimate goal of this gospel, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the sacrifice for all mankind. There are six other signs that we've already talked about. In chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the royal official's son, even from a distance. In chapter 5, Jesus heals the sick man who was laying by the pool. In chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people, and then he walked across the water. And then in chapter 9, Jesus healed the man who was born blind. This morning in chapter 11, we're going to look at the, the penultimate, the, the crown of all these seven miraculous signs, the raising of a dead man, something that is physically impossible. And I say that as if the other six were physically possible. Every single one of those miraculous signs is a sign that Jesus is God. There are also seven I am, I am statements in the book. And we've only seen four so far. We'll look at the fifth today, and then the two will be following in the next few weeks. In chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, Pastor Doug spoke on this last Sunday, he said, I am the gate. And also, I am the good shepherd. Those are the four, four proclamations that we have seen of Jesus Christ to date. The fifth one this morning proclaims that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So if you'll stand with me, with me we'll read chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews who had come, to, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. May God bless his word. Please be seated. You know, the Bible often talks about the different types of enemies that mankind has. And the three that, that we hear about are taught about Satan, right at the top of the, of the mound, sin, and death, physical death, the cessation of life as we know it. And the first two we can treat as concepts or um, ideologies, ideas. As believers, we know they are real. We know that Satan is a real entity. We know that sin is real. But there are people, many people around us, outside the walls of the church, who either do not believe that a being called Satan lives and exists, or they believe that he is their Lord and they outright worship him. Whether in how they live or in how they actually worship, they place a certain significance to this entity called Satan. One of the surveys that I actually checked out on or checked out created some concern in my mind. It was a survey done about six years ago of Christians, pro professing Christians. And one of the questions was, do you believe that Satan is a real being? 40% of the respondents said no. 40% of the people who professed to be Christians said they do not believe that Satan is a real being, but is rather an, an image of evil. It is rather just a, a personification, but not a real person. Another 19% in this survey somewhat agreed with that statement. They were on the fence, but they were kind of leaning towards the idea that Satan is not real. So my first question would be, what church are these people going to? Because all you have to do is read the book of Job and see that there is an actual Satan who is under the authority of God, who roams the world, and so on. The second thing is sin. We can treat sin the same way. We can think of sin as an ideology, as a concept. You know, the Bible teaches very clearly that sin is our defiance and rebellion against God. There are, there are consequences of sin. And the greatest of these consequences is our eternal separation from God. Even after we die, we are separated completely from the presence of God. This spiritual death is the ultimate punishment for any human being. Because we're sinful beings, we cannot fix our sin. We cannot do anything to, to bridge this gap between our eternal separation with God. And hence, we have a need for a Savior. Hence, the need for this book. Now, if you don't believe in this book, in this Bible, then, of course, you can do whatever you wish with sin. You can create your own religion, which, which puts a pretty bow around your sin and makes it acceptable. You can even, you can take sin, you can treat it as a concept, you can accept it, you can reject it. You can have your own self-developed worldview within which you can prioritize sin, you can rationalize sin, you can even legitimize sin, or even legalize sin, as we're seeing with the acceptance of abortion and same-sex marriage and, and doctor-assisted suicides. All of those are state sanctioned laws that go against the book, of, the book that God created. Death, on the other hand, 
is something that affects all of us. It is not a concept. We come face to face with it. It is one of the unshakable realities of our life that we come, come to understand very early in our life. Even when we're a kid, a child loses his or her pet hamster or the goldfish dies, and you come face to face with death. And as we grow older, we start seeing the ravages of death around us. We see that it is real. And we notice that death has no regard for social status or your academic accomplishments or who you are in your pedigree and what, what criteria you come with, what your bank balance looks like. Death has no regard for any of that. It comes to the old and it comes to the young. It comes whether you have lived a life that is fulfilled or whether you've lived a life that is filled with strife and struggle, whether you've gone through sickness or whether death came suddenly. It comes to all of us, and we are all at some point forced to face it. And each one of us deals with death differently. Christians face death, and they face it differently. Muslims, Hindus, atheists, and agnostics, it doesn't matter what your ideology, your faith, your belief system is. You come face to face with death. Christians believe that there is a life after death. We believe in that. And the ultimate prize, the ultimate goal of that is to be in eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Be in presence of God. Muslims believe that if you're a man and, and you've lived a pious life, you die and you get 70 virgins or something like that. I've never known what the women get, what the Muslim women get. Probably a short deal anyways. If you're a Hindu, you're probably hoping that you'll come back in something better, some better form. I don't know what better form, form there can be other than God's ultimate creation of mankind. If you're an atheist, well, it's game over. You die and you're no more. You're star stuff. You go back to the stars, like Carl Sagan said. And if you're an agnostic, well, you didn't care about the universe anyway, so you don't care. Everyone has a different ideology and an idea around dealing with death. And in chapter 11, we come face to face with death. We come face to face with a man named Lazarus and his death and the consequences of suffering that, that ravaged his family. However, despite the fact that death is the instigator of this event, death is not the center stage actor in this scene. It is Jesus Christ, who is life and resurrection, as we read. And so, when we look at this chapter, even though the theme is around death, the greater theme is around life that is found in Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 ended with Jesus traveling back to Jordan. He's, uh, he's gone back to the same place where uh, John the Baptist had been baptizing people. And he is here when he receives a message from Mary and Martha. Now, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are a family of three siblings. We've seen them in the Gospel of Luke first time when Jesus came to their home and Martha was running around and making preparations and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. She is just listening to his teaching. And Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, look, can you please tell Mary to come and help me? You know, and, and I love that about Martha, even though I don't want that attribute. She is not shy. She tells Jesus what she wants him to do. You know, she, I think, is the only one other than Peter in the Gospels who displays this character of blurting out whatever's in your mind and saying it to Jesus no, no matter what, the, what they're saying. She's kind of the female version of Peter, if you will. 
So that's our first introduction to this family. And in chapter 11 of John, the brother is sick. Lazarus is sick, and Mary and Martha send a messenger to Jesus. And messages, the one you love is sick. Jesus Christ is their first refuge. That's the first person you reach out to when this trial starts in their life. He is waiting, receiving the message, and this is a plea that's, that's been sent to him. But the plea is based in confidence. They're confident that Jesus Christ will respond the way they want him to respond. They're confident that he will come and heal their brother. They're confident because they have a relationship and a deep relationship, deep friendship with him. It is not something that they've just concocted. They have shared meals with him. He has been their guest at their home. They've listened to his teaching. They have witnessed him healing other sick people. You know, just a few days ago, if they recall, Jesus healed a blind man who was born blind. A few days before that, he healed somebody who was lying by the pool of Bethesda. They have seen and heard about these miracles. And then the royal official's son. Jesus didn't even go to heal him. Jesus healed him from a distance. Of course, Jesus would heal their brother, their friends. That's their other confidence. He, they have a friendship with him. And so friends come to friends' aid when there's a need. But Jesus Christ is their first refuge. The Bible does not give us any indication that they had gone to all the other doctors in the village of Bethany first and then come to Jesus. All the indication we have is that Lazarus is sick and Jesus is sent the message to come and heal him. They have put all of their faith in Jesus Christ. He is not their last resort. He is their first refuge. And this is their response. This is their response to when life threw throw a curveball at them. Seek God. Go after Jesus. Look for Jesus. Is this our first response as well? When we come to a point where we have to make a tough decision or life starts crumbling around us, is this the point where we first resort, try to resort it ourselves, find resolution ourselves, exhaust all of our own internal resources, and once all of that fails, we go to Jesus? Is he our last resort? Is he an afterthought? Is he our backup plan? If that is the case, then I would propose that that is a wrong approach. That is the wrong response. Jesus Christ should always be our first response, our first refuge, our first savior that we run to whenever, whenever there's life situations around us. And sometimes we go to Jesus with our own expectations. We go with a plan, and all we want Jesus is to do the execution of the plan. If, it's, if it is sickness that we're dealing with, then of course the plan is healing. If we lose a job, then of course the plan is a better opportunity. We tell Jesus what to do for us. We tell him what to do for us. But the second, the second portion of this passage tells us, I would like to read it this way. Jesus got the message about Lazarus. He got up, he packed up his bags, and he came to the house and healed Lazarus. That's what we would expect. That's what would be my expectation if, if I was in their position. Jesus is my friend. This is how friends take care of friends. He would come and heal. But that's not what happened. 
That is not what happened. In fact, what happens is completely opposite of what our expectations are. When God responds with something other than our expectations, it is because He is sovereign. He is above all and over all. And so I may come with an expectation of how the situation ought to be resolved, and yet that is not God's response. In case of Mary and Martha, there is complete silence. There is no response from Jesus. In fact, Jesus takes a troubling, makes a troubling statement and takes a troubling action. His statement is, this sickness will not end in death. The purpose of this sickness is to bring God's glory and bring glory to God's Son. Really? That's the best line you can give me. I want my brother healed, and you're pointing me to the glory of God. And then the second thing that Jesus does, the troubling action, is that there is no action. He doesn't move. He doesn't doesn't come to Bethany. He waits for two more days before doing anything at all. Now, if you're in Mary and Martha's shoes, this could be very, very hard to take. It could be a hard teaching to take. Perhaps the messenger did go back and tell them and said, Jesus said, you know what, your brother will not die, but all this is for God's glory. How do you take that? How do you accept that when you're in the middle of a crisis and the purpose of God's glory supersedes your expectations? It is a hard teaching, but the sovereignty of God is at full display in this. You know, when, when John was writing this gospel, I wonder, I wonder he remembered all of these events where Jesus performed a miraculous sign and he said, this is for God's glory. And so when he started to write this book, in the first chapter, he says, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. I wonder years later, as he was looking at all these miraculous signs, and he starts to see this theme, the blind man was healed so we may see his glory. Lazarus was raised so we may see his glory. And he cannot get that out of his head. And so when he writes the first part of the book, chapter 1, verse 14, he cannot help but say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God and the sovereignty of God supersede everything else. Now, when Jesus arrives at uh, Lazarus' tomb in verse 17, we see that Lazarus has been in in the tomb for about four days at this point. Uh, And there's a very significant reason for four days. Many of you already know what the reasons are. But first of all, the four days are crucial because by the fourth day, a body, a human body, a corpse has entered into a state of decay and a state of irreversible decay. What that means is that if Lazarus was to come out on day four, he would not be a pretty sight. He would be decomposing all over and not very pleasant. The death, the stench of death will be rampant everywhere. Jews used to use spices and so on when they would put a body in the grave, but they did not embalm the body like the Egyptians do. So there was no mummies, there was no anything like that. The human body just decayed and became part of, part of the grave. 
So no one in their right mind would want to see a corpse on the fourth day or after in, in case of the Jews. There was also a tradition among the Jews at that time which has no biblical, biblical basis or, or any kind of uh, validation in the scriptures, but the teaching was or prevalent thought was that if when a person died, their spirit hovered around the body for three days, trying to get in, trying to revive the body. So in this case, the fourth day means that there was no reason for Lazarus to come back to life other than God's absolute glory and power. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, some of you are too young to remember this, but there was a movie that came out in 1988 called The Princess Bride. And in that movie, um, Wesley, who's a stable boy and then becomes a Dread Pirate Roberts, he's been captured by Count Rogan, thrown into the pit of despair, tortured, but finally his best friends, Inigo Montoya, the Spaniard, and, and Physic, the giant, they, they rescue him. But by this time, it appears that Wesley is dead. So they take Wesley's body, they take him to Miracle Max, and Miracle Max was the, the doctor in the king's court, but the king's rotten son, Prince Humperdinck, fired him. And now Miracle Max is really angry with, with, with Prince Humperdinck. So they take the dead body to, to Miracle Max and they say to him, can you please help revive this man? And Miracle Max says, well, let me see. So he does some assessments and so on. And, and, and then he says, you know, good thing you brought him to me because he is mostly dead. And Inigo says, well, what do you mean? What does mostly dead mean? And Miracle Max says, well, mostly dead means slightly alive. So they can be revived. And then they go into this big conversation. And Inigo says, well, what, what do you do if the person is completely dead? And Miracle Max says, well, you do the only thing you can do. So Inigo says, what is it? And, and Miracle Max says, well, you go through their pockets and look for loose change. Nothing scriptural there. <laughs> so this thought that Jews had that the spirit hovered around, around the body is kind of this, well, they're mostly dead but slightly alive. And Jesus had already raised two dead people up to this point. He had raised Jairus' daughter, and he had also raised the widow's son. Now, the skeptics probably in that group would have said, well, these two kids were just young. They had only been dead for a few hours. The spirit was still hovering around them. Did Jesus even do anything to raise them? And so the purpose of the fourth day for the resurrection was that there was no chance at all. None whatsoever. Other than the power of God to raise Lazarus. That was the reason for the fourth day. Because by the time Jesus got to the grave, Lazarus was not mostly dead. He was entirely dead, without the shadow of a doubt. So as Jesus is making his way towards the tomb, Martha meets, meets Jesus on the road. We're in verse 20 right now. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming to Bethany, she packs everything up, she rushes out, she meets him on the road, and she encounters Jesus. And the first thing she says, Lord, you know, it's, it's, it's great to know that even in the midst of her grief, 
even in all the struggle that she was going through, in spite of all of her hot-headedness and everything, she knew who Jesus Christ was. Her address to Jesus is Lord, which tells us that she knew that Jesus was supreme over her life. Everything that was happening was under his submission. And so she addresses him as Lord. And then her grief takes over. Her grief takes over and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother would not have died. It's a simple, simple statement which expresses her trauma and expresses her grief. If you had been here, my brother had not died. A few verses later, Mary will come and see Jesus. And it's, it's beautiful to read that Mary uses the exact same words. They're both different people. They both interact with Jesus differently. They both listen to him differently. And yet they both express their grief the same way. And I wonder if it's because when Lazarus had gotten sick and Mary and Martha had sent the messenger... One of them was sitting by Lazarus' bedside taking care of him while the other was at the door waiting to see if she could f see familiar figure of Jesus coming down the street. And then they would switch spots. And the messenger came back and said, I've delivered the message. And they waited patiently. And Jesus never came. And then their brother died. And Jesus never came. came. And then they had the funeral. And then buried their brother. And Jesus never came. And I wonder at some point in their grief and their conversations and their, in, in all of the activity that was going on, I wonder how many times they looked at each other and said, you know, if, if Jesus was here, my brother would not have died. Our brother would not have died. And so they're verbalizing the toil and the turmoil that they've gone through over the last few days. You know, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that you can lay your soul bare before him. You don't have to come to him with any pretenses. You don't have to come to him with flowery prayers. You don't have to come to him looking all stoic and mighty. You can come to him just the way you are. You can speak to him just the way you want to because he listens. He listens. I remember a young man who went through cancer and passed away a number of years. He had grown up in a rough neighborhood, and sometimes when he would pray, his prayers, we couldn't say them from this pulpit. And yet, it was an expression of his grief, his pain that was laid bare before the Lord. He accepts that. He can handle that. So when Martha comes to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would have lived. Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He simply says, Martha, your brother will rise again. Here's the simple truth. He will rise again. And Martha, this is a redeeming statement from Martha. You know, we've always pictured her as this person who's more focused on the operations of the church than the preaching of the church. But she looks at Jesus and said, you know, I know that. I understand that. I know that he will be raised on the last day at the resurrection. She has her theology right. She's been listening while she's been cooking. But Jesus tells her that, you know, you need to look at me. 
Martha, don't focus on an event that will happen in the future. Martha, don't focus on an event that is happening right now. Don't look to the resurrection day for the resurrection of your, of your brother. Look to me. Look to me. Because I am the resurrection. I am the life. If you are in a relationship with me, if you believe in me, you will live. That's the focus. Not the event, but the person. Jesus Christ is the focus. And then he makes this proclamation. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Set your eyes on Jesus, not on the events that are going through our life. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then asks, then Jesus asks this great question of Martha. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe? And that is a question for every single person who's ever come to know Jesus Christ. Do you believe that he is who he says he is? It is a question that is never to be taken lightly. It is not a question that requires you to go out and agree with statement of faith of our church or do a comparative study of all the world religions. It is a simple question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? Because when we believe in him, we have life. And by, by extension, we infer that if we place our belief in anyone else other than Jesus Christ, we don't have life. Because life is only through him. The unbelievers receive eternal spiritual uh, life, or unbelievers re receive a life that is filled with condemnation, eternal damnation. And the believers are raised to live an eternal life in the presence of Christ. Do you believe this? There are only two possible outcomes when we take our last breath. And then Martha makes the great confession, which is amazing once again. Martha looks at Jesus and she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. That's her profession. That ought to be every believer's profession. As we carry on with the story, we come to the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35, two words. Jesus wept. He has seen people around him who are mourning, Mary and Martha and all the mourners along with them. His spirit is troubled by this. And the Bible says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What kind of a God weeps? What manner of a God sheds tears? Gods are supposed to be stoic. They are supposed to be above emotion, or at least the expression of emotion. They're supposed to be completely apathetic to what's going on. And yet, this God, our God, weeps. And not just once, we also see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps because he loves. He weeps because he loves, and he grieves with those who grieve. He grieves 
And even though we will never understand the magnitude or the depth or the breadth of God's love, yes, we have verses that tell us that. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We understand that to a very small, point, to, to a very small degree. We will never understand the true extent of God's love and what he's done for us. But at the very least, these tears give us a glimpse of his love. He is with you when you're grieving, when you're suffering, when you're crying, when you're weeping. He is in all of that with you. And it is comforting to know that the God of the universe can grieve with you because he is also the only one who can bring comfort to you. We get to the tomb of Lazarus. We're pretty close to the end of, of this event here. Jesus asked all the all those present, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said, come with us, Lord. So they end up at the tomb, and Jesus asks them to roll the, roll the stone away. But Martha's there again. Martha's there again to correct Jesus. Lord, there's going to be a bad odor in this, in this tomb. We don't want to roll the stone away. And actually, I think the King James Version translated as Lord, he stinks. You know, I know many, many sisters have said that about their brothers. <laughs> but in this case, it's true. And we can once again picture Jesus looking at Martha. The Bible doesn't record this, but I've always pictured Jesus looking at Martha and saying, Martha, Martha, did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you? We've just only walked for 15 minutes. I told you 15 minutes ago. You will see the glory of God if you believe. The glory of God is above everything that happens in a believer's life. Martha, you're thinking that this event is about a, de is about a dead man. It is not. You're thinking that this event is about the triumph of death over life. It is not. It is about the glory of God. That's what a believer's life is all about. That's what a church filled with believers is all about. If, it, if there's a believer or a church who's not living for the glory of God, they need to reorient their theology. You know, sometimes I wish, as I was reading through this, I wished that as we walk into the sanctuary, there should be a banner that says, this church exists for the glory of God. So that every time we walk through the doors and every time we walk out the doors, we are reminded why we exist. And maybe Chris is here. I'll make a request in the next building. Can we put something up like that? Because that's the purpose. If there's anything that happens under the roof of this church that does not, that does not point to the glory of God, that does not work for the glory of God, then it is completely acceptable in the kingdom of, unacceptable. Completely unacceptable in the kingdom of God. I got carried away. <laughs> Please put that banner up, Chris, so I won't do this again. If there's anything that we do that is out of line from bringing glory to God, it is unacceptable. Our circumstances, our situations in life do not ever change that mandate. We exist for the glory of God. And finally, in the final scene of this, this event, we see Jesus is standing in front of the open tomb. 
And based on our, our Star Wars mentality, we think it's a showdown. There's death in the tomb, and there's Jesus outside the tomb. And nothing could be farther from the truth. It is more like an eviction notice. Life has come, and death must depart. That's the only way to look at it. There is a dead man who will be raised. Because the Lord of all life has arrived. This is not a showdown. This is an eviction forever. Death has no more hold over Lazarus' body for that life. And when he is raised on the last day as a believer, he will live in eternity. And that is a hope for every single believer. Jesus speaks. He speaks towards the tomb. He speaks with a loud voice. He speaks with authority. He speaks with a loud voice and an authority. The same voice and same authority that, that created the universe. The same voice and the same authority that created galaxies and microscopic life forms. The same authority and the same voice with which he tenderly cared for a woman who was caught in adultery. The same voice and the same authority with which he blessed children and turned around and rebuked the religious leaders. The same voice that calmed the storms. He speaks with the same voice this time and brings a dead man to life. So he stands in front of the tomb and he commands Lazarus to come out. Lazarus, come out! That is the voice of all of life giver. Jesus Christ is the life giver for everything in the universe. And he commands this dead man to come out. You know, I've often thought that the reason Jesus called Lazarus by name was because it was a qualifier. Lazarus, only you come out. This is not a stretch of my imagination. This is the Lord of life who is going to do the exact thing on the last day. In Revelation, we read that Jesus Christ on the last day will call all the dead, just and unjust, righteous and unrighteous. Now, can you imagine with that context in mind, Jesus is standing in this graveyard and he stands in front of this tomb and says, come out. And every dead person within earshot comes alive. This is not a stretch of the imagination. This is reality. This is exactly what will happen on the last day. And so Jesus decides to put a filter on the resurrection. Lazarus, only you, not the rest of you. Only you, Lazarus, come out. There is power, power that spun the universe. Galaxies came into being. Power over life and death in those words. And so Jesus calls Lazarus back to life. There is tradition that says that Lazarus went on to live for another 60 years. He was part of the church. We don't know anything more about him after this point. But we do know 
that he became part of one of the greatest miracles that Jesus had done. Now, can you also imagine, now this is a figment of my imagination, but can you imagine Jesus standing in front of this tomb and Muhammad shows up and stands next to him? And Buddha shows up and stands next to him. And all the Hindu gods come up and stand next to him. And every other deity that every other person praises and worships comes and stands next to him. There's only one in all of that crowd who is the true God, who has power over life and resurrection. And that is Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes up, I just want to read to you one more time the conversation that happened between, between Jesus and Martha. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> 